That's a pretty amazing passage, isn't it? Picturing a God who stoops down and sings over you. A singing God. Is that the picture of the Lord that you have in your mind? Or is it rather of a distant, angry, unsettled God wagging His finger, pointing out your faults, bringing up your weaknesses? The jury's still kind of out on how He feels about you. He tolerates you. He'll let you exist. Man, that's just not the God of the Bible, is it? This is a God who sings over us in public, not in private. He's not embarrassed to be associated with you. What a picture. There's a man, and his name is Tony Campola. He's a sociologist, he's a pastor, and he's an author. And especially back in the mid-1990s, he was really popular, and he would fly all over the country, all over the, the world, really, and he would do conferences. Well, he lived in Philadelphia, and he found himself one weekend flying to Honolulu. And you can do the math, that's quite a, that's quite a shift with time zones. We've already seen how just one hour can mess you up, right? That's about a six-hour difference, if my calculations are correct. So, of course... He found himself wide awake at 3 in the morning in Honolulu, ravenously hungry. And so he went out walking around and down a side street, he found the only kind of place that would be open at that hour, kind of a sleazy place, you know. I think the name of it was the Greasy Spoon or something like that. So he walked in and talked to the guy behind the counter and I think he settled on a donut and a cold cup of coffee or something like that and All of a sudden, the door burst open, and there's eight or nine provocatively dressed women, and they're talking really loud. I think they've maybe been drinking, and uh, he says, you know what? I don't don't really have time. I don't really want to put up with this. So he gobbles up his donut. He's about to get up and leave, but then he overhears their conversation. They sit, sit on either side of him, and one says to the other, you know, tomorrow I turn 39. It's my birthday. And she said, get out of here. She said, well, what do you want from me, a birthday party or something? (laughs) She said, you want, me to, you want me to bake you a cake and sing happy birthday to you? And the other girl says, why do you got to be mean like that? No, I, nobody's ever done anything like that for me. I've never had a birthday party in all my life. And when Tony heard that, he sat back down, he waited for the women to leave. He called over the guy behind the, the bar, whose name was Harry. It turns out the guy owned the place. And he said, hey, you know those ladies? He said, yeah, I know them. He said, they come in here very frequently? He said, they come in here every night. And he said, "Um, the one beside you, her name is Agnes. He said, yeah, I heard her saying that tomorrow's her birthday. He said, I got an idea, Harry. How's about we throw a birthday party for her? And Harry said, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's do it. He said, you know all her friends? He said, I know all her friends. And, And Tony said, invite all of them. So... Sure enough, Tony goes out, he buys decorations. Harry insisted that he was going to be the one that made, made the cake. Um, so the next night, an hour earlier, about 2.30 in the morning, Tony walks into this sleazy, greasy spoon diner, slash bar, slash probably a lot of other stuff, and he decorates the place, and Harry brings out this birthday cake, lights the candles, and everyone kinds to be, tries to be indiscreet, and sure enough, on the clock, Agnes and her friend walk through the door, And out jumps everyone, and they yell, surprise, happy birthday, Agnes. And she's just shocked, Tony said. She's absolutely flabbergasted. And she starts to cry a little bit, but she melted into a puddle of tears on the floor when they all gathered around her and sang happy birthday out loud to her. Tony writes in a book he wrote called The Kingdom is a Party, The Kingdom of God is a Party. Uh, He said when they sang happy birthday over her, she fell to the floor, she was speechless, she couldn't stand to her legs, and she was shaking. And the, the owner, Harry, gave her a knife. 
And he said, hey, cut your cake, Agnes. We're all hungry here. Give us a slice of your birthday cake. And she looked at him and she said, do I have to cut it? Do we have to eat it? She said, can I just, can I just have this cake? Do you, do you mind? And she seemed really confused. Um, and Harry and Tony looked at each other and they said, of course, Agnes, it's your birthday. It's your cake. And she said, I just lived a couple of, couple of doors down the street. Can I, can I take this cake and, and take it home and put it in my refrigerator? I don't ever want to forget this. And they said, of course you can. So it was kind of awkward. She took the cake and she ran out the door crying. And this diner is filled with prostitutes and a, and a pastor and the owner of the bar. And Tony kind of looks around and he says, uh, you know what, guys, why don't we do this? Why don't we pray for Agnes? And that's what he did. He prayed for her out loud that God would save her, that God would change her life, that God would be kind to her and show her the truth. And then he said, amen. And Harry, the owner of this joint, leans over and he says, hey, buddy. He said, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. He said, what kind of church do you go to anyway? And this is what Tony said to Harry. He said, I go to the kind of church that throws a party for a prostitute at three in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, there's no church like that that exists on the face of the planet. If there was, I'd join it. Now listen, I think all of us, if we're honest, we can identify with what the owner of that joint, Harry, said. It's not so much, I don't think, that Harry doesn't believe that there are churches like that in the world. I think Harry's saying something deeper. I think he's saying there's no gods like that in all the world that would sing over and rejoice over a sinner. You ever thought that way about yourself, whether it was before you came to know Christ or even after, because we still make mistakes, don't we? We still violate our terms of the covenant we've made with God. We still disobey. We still sin. And sometimes we forget the picture that this passage teaches us. So what I want to do this morning is from this passage, and really from the whole context of the Bible, um, just remind you of three realities. Can we put this up? Three realities this morning that's true of every single person who has ever been born, except for one. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a little bit. Number one, we all long to be loved. That may sound kind of cheesy, and you're like, really? This sounds like the whole self-esteem thing. Just bear with me, okay? Just listen to me, and you can be the judge when I'm done as to whether or not this is true. One, we all long to be loved. Two, we all deserve to be judged. And three, we need, again, to be reminded of the gospel, which takes care of both of those realities, right? So reality number one, are you ready? Keep your Bible open to Zephaniah. I hope you found it. It's between Haggai and Habakkuk. It's a little minor prophet tucked away in the Old Testament. So did you, did you hear the verse um, that really I want to center this message on? It's verse 17. I want you to take a look at that. Because this is pretty crazy. I want to read it to you again, okay? Because this is one of those verses you need to read twice to make sure you get it. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? All of those verbs in Hebrew, they're, just, they're a different way. Hebrews love to stack up synonyms. It's, the, it's a different way to say the same thing. Loud, vibrant, joyful, celebrative. God's very, very happy about something that He is singing over. You. His creation. 
Minor prophets talk a lot about judgment. So it's really shocking to find this in one of the most judgmental, I guess you could say, minor prophet books in the Bible. The whole first two chapters is stacking up judgment against Judah, against Jerusalem, against the surrounding pagan nations, and even against God's people. And then something shocking happens. We'll get to that a little bit later, the judgment part. But something shocking happens here. We find God bowing down over His creation and singing this loud song of praise. It's pretty powerful. And I think the first point rings true. We all want that, don't we? I would even go further and say, not only do we all long to be loved, did you know that you actually need to be loved? That's right. You need to be loved. All of us need to matter to somebody, somebody outside of ourselves. You could say it a different way. You need to belong. You have this urge to belong. You have this urge to fit in, to be a part of the, of the inner circle, to be noticed, to be praised, to have somebody sing happy birthday over you when you know you don't deserve it, right? We all long for that. We all want that. Everybody wants to be rejoiced over. And God knows that. God knows that because He created you that way. That's why this text is one of a gazillion passages in the Bible that reminds us us of this reality. Did you know two different places in the Old Testament God says that you are the apple of His eye? When I say you, I mean His people, His children. He calls you the apple of His eye. Have you ever heard that phrase? You hear it all, you're the apple of my eye. You know what that actually means? It's a Hebrew phrase, and taken literally, it means the little man in the center of the eye. So is there a little man in here walking around? Look at that! No, when you look, when you get really, really close to somebody and you stare at their eyes, do you know you can see a reflection of yourself? The concave or con, is it convex or con, anyway, the refractive way that, that your image is reflected, you see yourself. You see your entire body standing there. And that's what that means. You're the apple of God's eye. You're the little man in his eye. You have to get really close to somebody to be able to see that. And the image is this, God is watching over you. He's that close to you. He's staring. You're the object of his affection and praise. You stare at something you're in love with. You stare at something that your heart leaps within you when you think about it, right? We all have this urge, have this longing to be loved. And it can be deadly if you don't get that affection. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. It's, it's a true story. King Frederick II, he presided over Germany in the 13th century. And he was a very proud and arrogant king, and he thought Germany was the only place on the planet, right? And so there's this debate among the nobles. What was the first language that humans ever spoke? And Frederick thought it was German, right? Um, So there was this debate. Was it Hebrew? Was it German? How did that go down? So he wanted to do an experiment. He took two infant babies from their mother, and he gave them to two nurses, to raise them in his palace, and he gave them two sets of instruction. One, don't ever touch the child unless you have to, to change the diaper and and all of that. I don't guess they had diapers back then. Whatever, though, okay? Don't don't touch the child. Don't make physical contact unless it's absolutely necessary. But here was the bigger set of instructions. Do not talk in their presence. Not just don't talk to them. Don't even talk out loud when you're around them because he wanted to see if left to themselves, what kind of language would human beings develop, right? Because he was certain it would be German. (laughs) 12, 13 years later, they would pop out speaking fluent, perfect German, right? Well, much to his his dismay, um, those two children didn't grow up to speak any language. You know why? Because the experiment ended just in a matter of months. They died. The babies died. Do you know why? 
What's that? No love. That's right. God created us to be loved. He created us. We are hardwired. I mean, you don't even have to have the Bible tell you that, really. You already know that. You already know that. And listen, here's a side note, okay? Pay attention, parents. Just a side note here. Um, Your children need your affection. They need that. They'll go shopping for it somewhere else if they don't get it from you. I believe that there is a very real connection between a lot of the damage, the violence, the mass shootings, the slaughter, the, the jacked up mental health problems we have in our land, and the lack of affection that children grow up with. And it even goes beyond just the father. It's just an affection from anybody that matters to them. It's got to be somebody that's significant, right? Not just a sibling. It's got to be somebody that holds weight in their world. And that's why the love of God is the most powerful reality in the universe. His is the opinion that matters the most, right? I mean, I'd love it when some other human sings over me, but let me ask you a question. How much weight does God have in your life to sing over you and rejoice over you, your creator, the one that you've sinned against, the one you've alienated yourself from? It's pretty amazing. Yeah, you don't even have to have the Bible to tell you this, because check this out. Dr. Dean Ornish wrote a national bestseller called Love and Survival, and he presents in that book study after study after study that demonstrates that love is a chief influence for mental, emotional, and even physical health. This is what he said. He wrote this. Check this out. Anything that promotes feelings of love and intimacy leads to healing. Anything that promotes isolation, separation, loneliness, loss, hostility, anger, cynicism, depression, alienation, And any such related feelings often leads to suffering, disease, and premature death. So even modern science is telling us this. It's proving that human beings are literally engineered for love. We are inescapably made for love. This same doctor said this. This is what I found interesting and a little bit humorous. The scientific evidence leaves little doubt that love and intimacy are powerful detriments of our health and survival, meaning if we don't have them. Why they have such an impact remains somewhat a mystery. No one can fully explain why they matter so much. That's what he looks like, by the way. Pretty cool. So it's a mystery. Doctors, psychologists, philanthropists, philosophers, they don't quite understand why, but they can't deny it. It's it's inescapable, it's undeniable that love has a powerful effect on us, right? And to remove it is dangerous, and unwise. It's a mystery to them. And he can't find anybody to tell him why. I can. (laughs) I can tell him why, because we're made in God's image. That's why. And by the way, do you know why it's such a mystery to them? Because check this out. Darwinian evolution says that we're animals, right? We just are some burp slime that crawled up out of a pond eons ago, right? Uh, And that love is not really a part of our existence. We're all about death, survival of the fittest, Um, They can't quite explain why love is so important to us. (laughs) A Darwinian evolutionist can't, but a Christian should be able to, right? Because we're made in the image of one who loves. God is a trinity. Remember, triunity. There's three members in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So love existed even before we were created. And we reflect that image of God. That's how He wired us. So, yeah, this is a Harvard-trained physician that can't figure this mystery out, but we can So I want to ask you a question that's related to this. Do you have a hard time with that image of God bending down over you, singing loudly? 
Because I found this, a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians, they just like, oh, I don't know about that. Let's not get too crazy here. Well, check, check it out. It's not Tommy. This is, this is the Bible. This is Zephaniah telling us this here. I'm just trying to be faithful to preach what the Bible says. If the Bible says God exalts over you with loud shouts and rejoicing, then I want to be faithful to share that with you, right? That's some good news. I mean, that can really shape and encourage the way you think about God, the way you think about others. Um, and if you have a hard time believing that, I don't want to offend you, but I want to be really honest with you because I've been a pastor long enough to say that I've seen some things. I've seen patterns. I've seen trends. And this is one of the things I've noticed, that if you have a hard time with that idea of God, I doubt whether you have fully understood all the implications of the gospel. Can you put this slide up for me? So here's a question I have for you. Not really a question, it's a statement. But I'll put it as a, a question, okay? Can true love for God, talking about in your heart, can you cultivate true love for God? Can you grow in your relationship to God and your obedience? Can you grow when you are unsure about God's feelings towards you? Is that possible? That you're going to grow up into the image of Christ. That's what we're predestined to, the Bible says. To be conformed to the image of Christ. So if you're unsure about how God really feels about you, what does that do to your growth, to your maturity, to your sanctification, to use a $50 word? What does that do? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me, let me ask it this way. Uh, how do you relate to parents whose love and affection you're not really sure about? You don't really have to answer that out loud. You know, don't you? What does that create? Withholding love, never really telling somebody that uh, looks up to you how you feel about them. Well, they grow to resent you. Or worse, they turn into hypocrites, right? They're in despair because they're not sure how you feel. Or they do all these things to try to pay you off at a distance and buy your affection and buy your love. Just to keep you kind of to stiff arm you. I'm doing, I hope I'm doing enough. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the in crowd because I am, I think. That's a terrible way to live your life as a Christian. I think a lot of people do. Insecurity will make you fearful. It'll make you short-tempered. It'll make you willing to bend the truth. Why? So that you can look better. So that maybe you'll be more lovable. Maybe somebody will finally accept you and see you for the beautiful person that you are, right? That's what happens so often. God's presence and God's approval are the greatest treasure in the universe. And listen, for a Christian... You don't obey so that God will accept you. You obey because you've already been accepted by God through Christ. There's a big difference there. You're not working your way up to assurance that you may or may never get. It's like the carrot keeps getting, the stick in the carrot keeps getting further and further away. No, um, you don't work your way up to assurance. You have assurance at the beginning of your Christian journey, and that empowers you to live your Christian life. That's what the gospel promise says. And if you question that, I would just take you to the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 makes this outlandish statement. Paul, the Apostle Paul does. And he says this. He says, God died for us while we were weak. Did you know the Bible says that? While you were weak, God died for you. And see, the Apostle Paul knows us, and he knows that we won't get that the first time. So he says it another way, just right after that. He says, God died for you while you were still sinners. You're like, oh, okay, well, that makes it even more clear. You were weak, you weren't strong, but Christ died for you anyway. Um, you were a sinner, you weren't a saint, and Jesus died for you anyway. But Paul knows that we're humans and that we forget and that we're in disbelief, so he said it 
The, the third way, check this out. While we were still enemies, God died for us. <laughs> Do you get it yet? While you were weak, not strong. While you were sinful, not righteous. While you were his enemy, not his friend, Christ died for you. Does that not prove his love for you? That you don't have to earn his love. You couldn't earn his love. Only one human being ever could. Jesus did. God knows us best. He knows that we need to hear that. And listen, hearing that levels the ground. That, that can't, if you know that you were an enemy and, and when Christ died for you, is that, gonna, is that going to puff you up and make you feel this, this uh, feeling of superiority toward other people, other races, other nations? No, it flattens it. It destroys it. You know that the, the, the field is level at the foot of the cross. We all deserve judgment if we get what we deserve. But that's the beauty of grace. And you know what grace does? God exalting over you with singing, it empowers you to love other people. Other people who aren't like you. Other people who don't sin the same way you do. You don't look down on them. You look at them and you know that you're locking arms with a brother or sister in Christ. That we all got enough sin to pile up to send us straight to hell, right? That's what the Bible says. So we all need love. I think Cher, the singer, I don't usually quote her. She's not much of a theologian, but she one time said something like this. She said, men are a luxury, not a necessity. And I get it. Ha ha. I know what Cher means, right? She's saying that romance, take it or leave it. I don't have to have it. And yeah, hey, that's right. That's true. You don't have to be married. Um, you don't have to have a family. You don't have to have kids. But I will say this. You do have to have love. Can't live without that. You can live without the romance. Many people do. That's a, non, that's a, that's a non-essential. But love, uh-uh. God says you need love. You have to have love. He wired you to have it. And if you don't, it's a very dangerous and damaging thing. And I think we're seeing that more and more. The Bible says in the latter days, the love of many will grow cold and men's and women's hearts will grow more and more calloused, will be more disconnected, more isolated. Don't you see that today? I mean, you don't need me to preach a sermon to you on the statistics of phones and social media and Instagram, and it's just tearing us to pieces. It is. The love of many is growing cold. So, so there's this idea of God rejoicing over you with singing. I know the thought. I know how we think. We think, yeah, okay, God's singing over us, but if he only knew some of the stuff that I've done, he'd stop singing. I mean, at any minute you're thinking Jesus is singing happy birthday over you, maybe like the, the people in that uh, sleazy joint were that night in Honolulu, right? And somebody's going to come up and interrupt Jesus and say, he goes, he did? You're sure? He, Tommy did? And he says, hey, stop. Um, no, the, the par party's over. The, everyone can leave now and go home. That's what we all think. That's our nightmare, that somehow somebody's going to come and bring new revelation about the depths of depravity in our heart, and the party's over, right? But J.I. Packer said this. Check this out. I love this quote. Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind because God justified you with his eyes wide open. Isn't that an amazing truth? God knew everything about you already when he died for you. Remember, he died for you when you were still an enemy. There's nothing that you've ever done that could make God change his mind about you. And listen, here's the better part of that. There's nothing you can ever do that's going to make God change his mind about you because nothing you did caused him to love you in the first place, right? That's humbling, but that's stabilizing too. <laughs> because if you, can, if you can work your way into God's love, guess what? 
you can work your way out of God's love. If God just fell in love with you, maybe he can fall out of love with you, right? That's not, that's not how Christianity works. Jesus is the reason that we have God's love at all. So again, that's such a powerful image. God bowing over us and singing and rejoicing in a loud voice out in the public, not in private. He's not embarrassed to be associated with us. Um, he's the one whose opinion matters the most. I went the other day. I didn't go. We actually rented it uh, on our TV at home. Uh, a movie called Wonder. It's a really great movie. I would recommend it. Sometimes I quote movies, but that doesn't mean I recommend all the movies I quote, okay? This is a really good family movie. We enjoyed it. Sarah, I think it was a really good, clean movie, right? Um, Julia Roberts plays a mother in that movie, and Owen Wilson is her husband. And they are the parents of a little boy uh, named... Augie, and he has a deformed face, really bad deformed face, a birth, some kind of genetic, I, I don't know exactly, but the person who wrote that story, it's based on a, an event that happened in the life of the lady who wrote the book, and Hollywood is just dying to get their hands on it. So this movie was really powerful, and there was one scene in particular that just, man, my, my kids were probably looking at me, and I was looking at them, are you going to lose it? Um, his first day of middle school, the whole, the whole movie revolves around, they're sending him to middle school, but they know how cruel children can be and they can anticipate what's going to happen because he's pretty disfigured in his face. So can you pull this quote up? So his first day home, he's upset, he's crying, he's been bullied, and his mom has a conversation with him and she says, and he asks her, why do I have to be so ugly, mommy? Oh man, it's that hour of sleep I lost. It's going to get to me. And his mother says, you are not ugly, Augie. And he said, you just have to say that because you're my mom. And, and his mother says, oh, because I'm your mom, it doesn't count? And she says, because I am your mom, it counts the most. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? The people who carry the weightiest opinion of us, the people whose affection and affirmation and declaration of praise we need the most are the people uh, like our parents. I mean, wh what would it mean to you if a famous celebrity came in here and sang happy birthday to you? It happens all the time. I mean, listen, guys, people, that's people's death wish that have a terminal illness. They want a birthday party and they want this celebrity to be there. or They want the Incredible Hulk or, you know, Tony from the whatever, the hero movies. The, what's his name? The Robo? Anyway, you know where I'm going with this, right? Um, presidents, celebrities, moms, dads. How about God? <laughs> How about your creator? Is that the most powerful affirmation you can receive in the universe? Isn't that the most transcendent reality in the world? You know what kind of power that that would unleash in your life? You know how secure that would make you? I mean, I'm thinking about all the stuff going on at schools today and the arguments, the debates, the hate, the anger, the misunderstanding, the confusion politically, socially, all this stuff. Um, and we can't, we're not able to stop it, guys. I mean, Jesus said when he comes back, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, the poor you have with you always. That doesn't mean we try and th that we don't try or that we're complacent or apathetic. We strategize. But listen, at the end of the day, all we can do um, is maybe create some laws and, and threaten to punish people if they break them, right? We, we have something now called hate speech and uh, hate acts. And, but listen, you cannot change a person's heart. We don't have the power to be able to do that, right? But you know what can secure somebody's heart? 
if they're a victim of hate speech or if they're a victim of a racial slur or anything like that, I can't tell them that, look, this is never going to happen again. Because it will. It will happen again. What can I do as a pastor? How can I help somebody that's a victim of that? I can tell them, look, that person's opinion, whatever they said of you, don't give it more weight than it should have. You know? Because God's already said something about you. Rooted in Christ. Now, that's the important part. We're going to get to that. God has already told you in His infallible Word how He thinks about you because of Jesus. He shouts over you, man. He's singing happy birthday to you. He is rejoicing and celebrating who you are. That's important to know that. This is the most important transcendent in the, in the, in the universe. God's singing over you. You know what singing means anyway, right? We sing in the rain. We sing in the car. We sing in the shower. Why do we do that? You guys know you do. You do. I sing, and, and uh, I don't sing that well. I don't. But I sing when I'm happy. I mean, sociologists and scientists tell us singing is what we do when we have something that's just about to explode, and we have to just burst out with song. And sometimes even the words don't make sense, right? One scientist said singing is more of a primitive urge than talking. And I think he's on to something. Did you know one of the first recorded words of Adam in the Garden of Eden? You know what it is? Did you know it was a song? Did you guys know that? It was a song. It was a poem. When God brought the woman he created from Adam's rib, named Eve, when he brought Eve to Adam, do you know what Adam did? He burst out in song. Did you know that? That's what he said. He said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, that's a poem. It's song. It's music. Adam was going, whoa! The first thing he did, he burst out in singing over this beautiful creature that God made for him. Did you know there's a book in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon? And for eight chapters... Solomon and his lover, his bride, are just exulting over one another, going back and forth, singing, poetic expressions, saying how much they, how perfect they are, how beautiful they are. In fact, got to be honest, there's a rumor that the Jews would not allow their children to read that book until they were 12 years old. Some pretty heavy stuff in there, right? Check it out later, okay? Not going to preach on it today. Singing's important. You sing over what's important to you. You rejoice over what's beautiful to you and, and what's on your heart. What's the apple of your eye and what's in your mind? Singing, St. Augustine said, is a lover's thing. He's, that's a quote from Augustine. Can we put that up there? Singing is a lover's thing. Singing is what lovers do. Have you ever been serenaded? Isn't that every woman's dream is to be serenaded, to have somebody, it's two in the morning, you're half asleep, you hear this pecking noise... It's a rock at your window. You throw open the shades, you look down, and there he is. Your beloved. And he's got a banjo, right? And a wrinkled up piece of paper, and he sings a love song to you. I mean, we're laughing, but doesn't everybody want that? You want to be the object of somebody's affection. You want to be the subject in somebody's song. And God knows that because he made you that way. And that's why this is a beautiful picture of what God does. C.S. Lewis said this years ago, talking about praising and singing, how that's a part of our humanity. He said, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, animals, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely express, expression, but a completion of our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And God does that out in the open. You know, we're not God's problem child that he locks up in the room and says, just, I love you, but just don't come down when the company's here, you know? That's not how God relates to us. God's not ashamed of us, even though we are of him a lot of the time, right? He's not embarrassed of us or ashamed to be identified with us. I would even dare to say that God's proud of us, but not in the sinful kind of proud way you read about in the Bible. And I'm telling you right now that some people, that unnerves you a little bit for me to even say that. It's like, oh, I don't know, Pastor. God like sings over us? Yes, God sings over you. And God doesn't want that truth to be hidden from you because you need it. Man, this is a dark, broken, hard place to live right now, isn't it? Don't you need that truth to just settle your heart and secure and anchor your soul? That no matter what you face when you leave these doors this morning, you know this truth. I have a God who exalts over me and who rejoices over me. I'm the apple of his eye. I matter to him. I belong to him. He belongs to me. Nothing I did created that love, so nothing I can do can forfeit that love. That's powerful. And that's the message of Christianity. And listen, I'm not trying to be cruel or political or no other religion can make that claim, guys. No other religion in the world can make that claim. You've got to do something. You've got to do something to earn God's love. And I hope when it's all said and done, it was enough. I hope it was enough. I hope you get the assurance you need. You know, it may mean you have to go strap a bomb to your body and blow up a building to really, really ensure you did enough, that you're passionate enough and you're a zealous enough follower. Or, or, or I hope you really got enlightened enough. Or I hope you kept all the pillars. Or I hope you made the pilgrimage. You know, whatever it is. So that maybe, maybe you had the hope of being reincarnated and not being a skunk. You know? I mean, there's some weird, some weird religions out there. Christianity says, no, you get the assurance that you didn't, you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to earn it, so you can't do anything to lose it. That's Christianity. Look at this verse again. I know there was a lot of verses read. We're not going to go over all of them, but check this out. Verse 17 again. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And this is a beautiful picture here. This whole passage, God presents himself in three different roles. He's a warrior coming back that secured the victory. He's the king that came back to rule over his people. He's the bridegroom that came back to secure the love of his spouse. He's the parent that comes back that's soothing his child. And man, that's a beautiful picture right there because he quietens us by his love. We get restless. We get angry. We get offended. We get mad, we get unsettled, we get depressed. And you know what God says here? What he's doing is he is settling us down. You know, we have a toddler that still sleeps in his crib. And Sarah and I, sometimes we have to take turns, depending on if, we, if I have a late night. Uh, we have a guest room that we keep our crib in. And when Tyler wakes up, he ain't happy. <laughs> he's not happy at all. He is not a happy baby. He's standing up, shaking his crib, going, Aah! he's unsettled. And you know what? Sarah has told me, honey, um, if you want, you can sleep in the guest room tonight, and Tyler's going to wake up two times, probably around 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and he's going to be really angry, and it's not going to be probably because he has a dirty diaper or something like that. He just needs you to just sing. Just, if you just sing over him, he'll lay right back down and go to sleep. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I tried it. <laughs> I said, what are you saying? She said, I sing Jesus Loves Me. That's his favorite. I'm like, okay, cool. So 2.30, ah! 
I'm shaking, the whole house is shaking, and I'm half asleep, I'm tripping over there, and I reach down, and we had to actually turn our crib around because he was climbing out, the back's taller, so I turn it, it's like a prison in the corner of the room, so I reach my hand through, I can't see it, I'm like, son, just calm down, Jesus loves, and he's, "Ah!" (laughs) I can't quiet him, I can't settle him down, no, he needs his mother to do that. He needs his mother. Why? Because he knows she means it. <laughs> She's the real deal. And you know what? God's the real deal. He's the only one that can quiet us in our love. We turn to so many different places to give us peace, to give us assurance, to settle our hearts. We turn to some really bad stuff sometimes, and it doesn't work. God says, this is what you need right here. You need this reminder that I'm rejoicing over you. I... Uh, I had one more illustration here, and, and this really goes with the second and the third points. We'll get, we'll get to in a minute. We'd, you know, the, the problem with all of this is that we know we don't deserve this, right? We long to be loved, but we know in our hearts, we don't deserve it, guys. We don't, we don't deserve this kind of love. We don't deserve this kind of birthday party, maybe which is why that lady who was a prostitute in that opening story, that's why she fell to the ground and was just beside herself, because she knew, nobody ever loved me like this, because I never felt lovable. I've never felt lovable. You know, we know that we've sinned. We haven't loved God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourself. We haven't kept our terms of the covenant God made with us. In fact, turn back real quick. Look at chapter, uh, look at how chapter three opens. Zephaniah is an incredible book, as I've told you. It's some of the weightiest threats of judgment in the Old Testament, but some of the loftiest promises of love at the end. And you're thinking, how can those two things coexist? Check this out. Chapter 3, he says, uh, he's talking about Jerusalem, okay? She listens to nobody's voice. This is chapter 3, verse 2. She doesn't trust in the Lord. She doesn't accept correction. She doesn't draw near to God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her judges are eating wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. He's saying, your leaders, your prophets, your priests... They're like ravenous wolves. They're not shepherds. They go out and gnaw everything off the bone. They don't even leave any meat on it the next day. The prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Our priests are profane. They do violence. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning God shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust know no shame. And then he says in verse 6, I've cut off nations. He's talking about all the judgment around them. The 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 um, I start to say the Philippians, the Philippines, um, the Ethiopians, all the people that are around the pagan nations. God has judged them. He's reminding them, I've laid waste to their streets, to Nineveh, the Assyrians, so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. He's saying you saw all that, and I said, surely that's your wake up call. Surely you'll repent and return. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. And God, it's almost as if by verse 7, he's throwing his hands up in the air and says, nothing works for you. I threaten judgment. I destroy the nations around you. I correct you. I chastise you. And you're worse. And so look what he says in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. God says, I'm coming. Wait for me. The day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. The end. (laughs) How's that for uplifting, right? 
You know what God's saying? Have you, did your parents ever say this to you growing up? Wait till your dad comes home. You ever hear that one? I heard that one a lot, and I needed to. I shouldn't say it. My parents listen to my sermons. I, I didn't hear it that much, Mom, but sometimes I did hear it, and I needed to. Because you know what? I loved my dad, but I didn't want to be spanked by my dad. You know? That, 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 held, that held out a threat for me. Wait till your father comes home. And God says, you just wait. I'm coming into your midst. I'm coming to Jerusalem. I'm coming to Judah. And I'm going to bring justice with me. It's like that movie Tombstone. You know, hell's coming. <laughs> Hell is coming to this town. That's what God was basically promising. So God is going to show up in the middle of their city. And what's going to happen? And then look at the very next verse. Guys, when you read the Bible this way, it should shock you, startle you, blow you away. Look at the very next verse. So we're left with, you better brace yourself, I'm coming. It's as if you're hunkered down in the cellar, a tornado's coming. Category 5 tornado. Or another Category 5 hurricane. You're waiting on the hammer to drop. You're waiting on the sword of justice to fall. You're bracing yourself. The storm clouds are gathering. And then look at verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And then the next verse, part of our text, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, rejoice, exult. Verse 15, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What in the world is going on here? I mean, did you get that? And I'm not just making this up. Judgment, 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 rejoice. It's like, what happened, man? I thought God was angry. I thought he was coming with the sword. And he was going to bring judgment. What in the world happened? Well, you know what happened, because you're a New Testament Christian, don't you? God did bring judgment, see? But the thing is, you weren't the object of His judgment. Somebody else was. Somebody else said, hey, I know these people deserve judgment. And I know that they have rebelled against you. They haven't responded to your correction. They haven't repented. They haven't even confessed their sins. And I know they deserve the hammer. They deserve the sword. They deserve to be destroyed. They don't deserve for you to sing over them. And this is Jesus, by the way. And he said, but, I, but I'll tell you what I'll do. How's about I take their place? I take that judgment for them. I absorb all of it. And you know what had to happen for that to happen? <laughs> I'll just say that. Do you know what had to take place in order uh, for us to be rejoiced over? Jesus had to leave the comforts of His Father. Jesus, who was the object of His Father's praise. Jesus, who was always the one that God the Father was singing over and rejoicing over. He had to leave that. You know, there was a trade-off that took place. Jesus says, how's about this? I take you and I move you here and God's going to rejoice over you. Uh, where you are at, where the judgment's coming, I'll go over there and I'll take the judgment. See, when Jesus was on the cross for the first time in the history of the world, since time was created, God stopped singing over Him. God stopped exulting over him. God stopped rejoicing over him. And instead, Jesus became the object of God's judgment. And man's scorn and man's ridicule 
See, that's what we deserve. We deserve that. We all long to be loved, but we know we don't deserve to be loved. We deserve to be judged. That's what this text says, right? And the New Testament tells us Jesus traded places with us. He took the judgment for us. It's almost as if God made a fool out of Himself, right? For us. That's powerful. That's what we need to see. We need to see how committed is God to loving us. How powerful is this love? See, here's, here's the problem, guys. When, when we talk about God's love so often, we want to just leave this wrath and judgment part out. And I want to submit to you, when you read the Bible and you get to a hard passage like Zephaniah, that's a hard book to read, man. It's dark. It's ominous. It makes you sad to read it. But you've got to read it all the way through to get to the good news, right? So when you're reading about God's judgment, don't write it off. Let that take you deeper and deeper into the reality of what the gospel stands for, what it means. Because if you're talking about God's love and you're never mentioning God's wrath and God's judgment, that love is cheap. Don't just tell me God loves me. I want to know how much that love cost him. And the Bible says it cost Jesus his life. It cost him to sever his relationship with his father and to become the object of God's scorn and man's ridicule and, and God's judgment. God made a fool out of himself for our sakes, right? You know, something really embarrassing happened to me. When I was dating Sarah, and I was convinced that this is the one. This is the one. I want, I want her to be my wife. But we were early in the process of dating. And I don't know how it is now. I'm 43. But uh, back then, telling somebody you love them, man, that was a define the relationship moment. You know what I'm saying? And I was, I was like, this is the night, man. I'm going to tell her I love her. I don't care. I want the whole world to know. So we went out on a date. I don't think we went and saw a movie. Went out to eat. Went to our favorite spot to hang out, and I looked her in the eyes, and I said, Sarah, I love you. <laughs> Made a fool out of myself, man, because here's what she said. I mean, you would expect her to say, I love you too, honey, and I've been waiting to hear this all my life. You know what she said? Thank you. <laughs> it's a true story, honey. That's what she said. Crickets chirping, loud, awkward, awkward, silence. But you know what? I was relentless. I was relentless. I pursued her. I made a fool out of myself. See, what Sarah needed was just not this affirmation like, I love you. She already knew that. What she needed to see was me pursue her to make a fool out of myself, to fight off the competitors, and there were many. But listen, it wasn't my wit and my charm and my good looks and my intelligence. I don't have any of those things, really. It was my making a fool out of myself and pursuing her that won her affection. We need to see a pursuit. We need to see an investment. And man, didn't God show us that to the 10th degree? That's what God did for us. We deserve to be judged. But the gospel, listen, the gospel takes care of the judgment we deserve and also the love. You see love and judgment together at the cross, don't you? That's God's declaration of how deeply He loves you. So, don't, so get this image of a distant, angry, cold, calloused, God wagging his finger or pointing at you from heaven. Instead, get this picture of Jesus on the cross with his arms stretched out and then bending down over you, exulting over you in loud praise. I mean, and you know what? We ran out of time here, but maybe a little bit later today when you've taken your nap to catch up on that one hour you lost, read the rest of this passage, man. We could, we could dig for hours into this. All the, the things that God is saying, I'm going to gather you. All your enemies have been removed. You're never, never going to have to be afraid again. This is so shocking, the end of this. Some liberal commentators that I read, they question whether Zephaniah is still the one writing when it comes to chapter 3. Isn't that crazy? 
They're like, this is so crazy. that Zephaniah, could, he's not the prophet that said all the stuff about judgment. Yeah, he is. This is the Bible. This is the gospel. The, the cross is where judgment and grace meet together. They kiss. And this is God's love for us. This is a powerful reality, the most powerful reality in the world. A father singing over his child, a spouse singing over her lover, a king singing over his people, a warrior singing over his home. So how does that make you feel about God? How does that make you feel when you've disobeyed God, when you've sinned, when you haven't been obedient, you haven't been faithful, maybe you haven't read your Bible in days, maybe weeks? Does this image help secure your heart? Don't you want to follow a God like that? Don't you want to obey Him? Don't you want to tell others about Him, about this amazing love He's displayed for you? I think you do. I do too. Let's pray.